Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, as Marine veteran and author Akshay Nanavati takes us on a deep journey as he finds a way to overcome traumatic experiences in his life and looks to help others to do the same. Topics include survivor's guilt, seven days in darkness, and the notion of suffering well. We'll let Akshay explain. Here we go. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back everybody to another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast. The suffering episode. Today, we are not suffering in 78 degrees and a nice cool breeze in a mysterious location deep in the heart of Ojai, California. You wouldn't like it here. And next to me, instead of across from me, because we are vaccinated, is Mr. Daniele Bolelli. Yes, indeed. Today, we are going to play with Mr. Akshay Nanavati. He's got a book out named Fiervana. Uh, endorsed by the Dalai Lama. Check that out. That, that's the that's a pretty incredible story. So check out the episode, and if you dig it, you can always go to our Amazon link, which would be even sweeter oh, if yeah. you want to check the book and uh, get it that way. Speaking of which, our Amazon link is if you just type dbamazing.com, again, dbamazing.com, and you get whether this book or anything else you want from Amazon, it helps us out a bunch. You know, there is a tiny chance that I will bring you that. Personally, you would yeah. show up in person to no, deliver. I actually deliver things for Amazon on Sundays out of desperation. That's hey, so There's nothing, nothing more soul wrecking than arriving and seeing six hundred packages that has to be disseminated to the world. Fun and, times, huh? Oh man, buckets of fun. I'm sure. I'm enjoying it because it's I, it's my suffering for my commiseration for my. It's your path. You found. Uh... I've, I've learned a lot from Firvana. Sweet. Let's say thank you to a sweet few folks, uh, starting with Sure Design T-shirts. They are fantastic. I love them. I'm actually thinking... Uh, I wish they uh, still had those available. Weren't those awesome? Yeah, these ones are awesome. They, uh, these guys are from our pal Cheap, who uh, was a friend of Bennett, who designed all the cannabis ones. Those ones great. are not around, but they have a lot of other great T-shirts at SureDesignT-shirts.com, so check them out. <laughs> Big thank you to grasslandbeef.com for their fantastic products. So if you are planning on going grocery shopping, take a look at Grassland Beef first to see if they have what you want and have it delivered to your door. They have some really high-quality stuff. Uh, thank you also to zebraathletics.com. I have a homemade dojo as a result of it. There are some great mats that I use for martial art practice. So if you're thinking of anything of that sort, zebraathletics.com is the place to go and uh, i guess last but not least the people who keep the drunk into the grand drunken taoist 
Um, I I don't know why I always have to say it that way. I cannot just say hey. um winery. Well, what fun would it be if you did? Yes. So the I'm I, gonna do it while I do do the picture. Um, right, um, a winery, and also they don't have the um in the name, but they are they make some pretty damn fine wines. Is materawines.com. Their wine is yum. That's the one. Okay, I, we need to come up with a new sound for them. So that's all of these folks support us in one way or another, and we love them for it. And speaking of people who support us, let's say a big thank you to the people who parted with their hard-earned money Look to give us some. Let the pottering begin. So let's say thank you to Edward Feldman, Lane Raper, Yanni Linnima, Luis Pesquera, Jesse Rantakangas, Aaron Weisner, Clayton Payne, Austin Stilwell, Christopher Parcel, Ross Cranham, Stephen McKee, Jonathan Waterloo, Philip Sorkov, Gerald Tater, and Frederick Hahn. Thank you, everybody, so much. You guys are awesome. If you want to join this brave band of heroes who decide to do such a thing as support us, you can go to paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Again, that's paypal.me forward slash the letter D, the letter B, O L E L L. amazing. And we love you for it. Hey, the first incarnations of Strawberry Nation are on Facebook right now on the Socially Distance Fest. We've done two episodes on uh, getting your straw bales ready for action. Oh, yeah. So and this before... will expand out as we get into the summer. But for now, we're doing little videos, and uh, it's going to grow from there, are just you... like our straw bales. Are you putting them out on YouTube? We're going to collect them, and once we get, like, the six together for this first set, just put them all together. Yeah, it's growing season. Uh, Rich, in the last year, you know, him talking about the stuff he does and everything, we got a bunch of pictures from some of you guys who have been listening and got inspired by Rich green thumb and working in the garden so um i'm bugging him constantly about starting a podcast about it because i'm sure there are a lot of people who can use some help in the gardening department uh, they have the inspiration but not necessarily the know-how so i hope you make it happen i'm sure they can do it there's this year they're all ready to go they're soaked up full of uh, nutrients and uh, i love to plant them this weekend and this is like broccolini that grew from where we harvested the seeds last year beautiful so. yeah guys it'll be fun cool. it's coming coming in coming coming soon let's do that so in light of that let's start this up okay Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Let's jump into the conversation with Mr. Akshay Nanavati. Did I come even remotely close to pronouncing that? That was correctly? really good. Nice job. Most people mess that up, so <laughs> I'm impressed. I think it depends. There are some languages that work well with Italian pronunciation. Yeah. Uh, I guess this fits the bill. Like, I do great. Like, with something like Japanese, it's perfect because you read it exactly the way you read Italian. The way you pronounce the vowels, the way you pronounce everything is other languages, not so much. Uh, English is one of them. 
stupid language. Yeah, Nanavati has that Italian kind of feel, right? I've been told Nanavati. It has that Italian feel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, ah, Nanavati, of course. <laughs> right? He's making Action. some pasta tonight. Yes. It's going to be nice. Yes, that works. Cool. So let's jump into, I mean, there are many ways we can get the ball rolling on this, but basically for people who are not already familiar with your work, uh, the 10 second pitch would be you have been through a lot of shit to put it mildly. You have seen some really dark aspects of life, but you also found a way to come out from the other end in a much happier scenario. Now this clearly is a big deal because we all struggle because we all go through mountains of shit throughout life and some of us just never found a way out. So anytime somebody does, it's always a good idea to check what have they done to be able to come out from the other end somewhat unskated or if not unskated, maybe very skated, but skated then in a way that you can heal from. And so it's always an interesting process to see how that journey works out because again, you know, nobody can... Nobody can leave that process for you. It's not that you can copy exactly somebody else's model and it's going to work for everybody, of course, but it still can give you ideas. And even if you can borrow 10% of somebody else's journey that can give you some insight on how to tweak your own, that's a win in my book. Absolutely. So let's play with yours a little bit. Um, if you want... Take it however you want in however long you want to go in each direction and then we can, you know, ask questions and all of it. But basically just to give people who are not familiar with you a little bit of a sense of your journey. Sure. Yeah, I'll kind of share how I got to what I do now with Fearvana. You know, I was originally from India, born in India, and at a young age, I moved around a lot. I moved to Austin, Texas at 13 after living in India and Singapore. And so moving around a lot, I was very unsure who I was. So I became very adaptable, but also very impressionable. Sure. So when I moved to Austin, I soon after moving at the age of 13, it was about 15, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol. I was, I mean, I used to cut myself. I have like scars on my arm from cutting myself, burning myself, very self-destructive. I lost two friends to that lifestyle and was kind of on the cusp myself until I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. That, have you seen, have y'all seen that movie? Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, if I can give it quick time out on that and ask you about that like what do you think made you because you know you are traveling across the world you land in austin what makes you take this trip into the dark side before at least from the way it sounds before any major shit has happened and what was the first impression of the united states after singapore you know when i first moved to texas like this was way before the internet was a thing right so we like my friends in Singapore, they just said, you're moving to Texas. So we had this very um, this impression of Texas. They, they literally told me my friends in Singapore, like, dude, they're going to hate you because you're brown. So I moved to Texas thinking that I'm going to experience all kinds of racism and sure. people are going to hate me. There's going to be cowboys and horses. Right. No idea what to expect. But Austin, as you all may know, is like this sort of uh, liberal story. hub, yes. very hippie kind of keep Austin weird. Right. So and when there's more I moved, than a few I, brown people in, in yeah. Texas, too. There's a lot. Exactly. <laughs> there's a few. Exactly. <laughs> I had no idea about any of it at the time. So I loved it. I mean, I loved Austin to this day. Great city. I thrived when I moved. But to kind of answer your question, Danielle, you know, when I moved around again from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore to Austin, so I moved in four different cities by the age of 13. So when I moved here, I was doing what it takes to kind of fit in with my with the tribe, right, with the group to seek uh, belonging, as sure, we all sure, do, right, sure, the human sure. need. But I've always had this, when I look back on my life now, I've had this desire to kind of push the edges. So even in Singapore, I used to run barefoot on rocks just to test myself. 
when I was a kid in India, I used to play rugby and every time I would get cut up and scarred, I would love these scars as if they were these war wounds, you know, and I, and I, I thrived on them. So what happened in Austin, my parents, and I've had great parents, by the way, no traumatic child or anything like that. Like I could not have asked for better parents gave me just a fantastic life. And they've asked me, you know, in now, what could we have done differently? And honestly, it wasn't their fault. I happened to, and you know, I don't blame external environments. Obviously I take responsibility for my actions, but when you're young, you're very impressionable. So I got into a group of friends who we, who got me into like drugs and Mm -hmm. I'm being the person I am. I was the one, me and one other friend were the first to start going from marijuana and alcohol into much harder stuff. And that friend is no longer alive today. So we were kind of, I was the guy, I was willing to do any drug that came my way, wanted to push the line, you know, and I look back on it. Like, I I think if I, if I had found a group of friends who were, let's say ultra runners or rock climbers, I probably would have went all in on that. You know, and right. that now that's part of who I am. But right. at the time, that became my avenue to push the limits. Yeah, gotcha. To explore the edges. So yeah, the, spe- the specific darkness was almost by chance. The your personality is just very push the limit, and whatever path you're on, put it to the extreme. And in this case, because it was a slightly darker path, you took it to the tenth power. To push it to the edge. Yeah, okay, and even cool. like the thing of like cutting myself and burning myself. You know, there's. Now I obviously, I, it's now I still seek suffering, but there's virtue to it. When I run ultras, when I climb mountains, there's the spiritual purpose to it. This was kind of this sh- shortcut to the purity of pain, you know, that I was seeking and there was no virtue to it. It was just doing it while I'm all fucked up on drugs or whatever it may be, you know? And so there's sure. no, there was no spiritual meaning to that pain. But now again, it's, it's all that stuff's been channeled in just a much more positive and healthier and more spiritually fulfilling way right. to, to who I am today. But the movie Black Hawk Down was the trigger that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Watching that movie, and you know, you've seen it. There's that scene, specifically this scene, but many elements of the movie. But it was that part when Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, two two men, they received the Medal of Honor posthumously. They volunteer to go on the ground from the chopper. They volunteer to go on the ground to set up a defensive perimeter and protect Michael Durant, one of their fellow soldiers, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel were heading their way. And they ultimately died, but Michael Durant was alive and still alive to this day because of what they did. And watching that, I mean, the kind of human being who would knowingly sacrifice everything for another human being, it was awe-inspiring. It just left me, I mean, after, after watching the movie, I read the book Black Hawk Down and just started devouring book after book after book on military and life in combat. And almost overnight then, I stopped doing drugs and decided this was my path. I wanted to, I mean, I was living this very selfish, meaningless, worthless existence with no purpose, no value. And I wanted to serve in an institution where the good of the group matters more than the good of the individual. You know, the Marines, they don't care about your well-being. What matters is the mission and the men. And there's something tremendously beautiful about that. So that was the trigger that had me get out. But even joining the Marines took about a year and a half because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. So I had to kind of fight my way in. I had flat flat feet. I have scoliosis. I have all these these genetic defects. But uh, because it was a post 9-11 world, otherwise I don't think I would have gotten in. But, you know, here's a young kid who wants to go Marine Corps infantry. Sign me up, right? So right. Joining the Marines is when I started to find the beauty in suffering, the beauty in pain, because obviously boot camp was hard, you know, but I thrived. I mean, I only, not only, of course, I survived, but I graduated infantry school as an honor graduate in my platoon. And I loved these experiences. I loved testing myself and serving for something bigger than myself. So after joining the Marines, I started to look for other ways to challenge myself. I went mountain climbing, cave diving, rock climbing, skydiving, like nature kind of became my playground to explore the human potential. Sure. How long were you in the Marines? I was in the Marines for six years. years. Six years. In 2007 is when I was deployed to Iraq. I was activated and went sent to Iraq as an infantry non-commissioned officer. 
So I'm guessing that that process, though, while you were thriving in the sense that you were doing well, the six years warfare, multiple deployments, all that, um, my guess is that that carried its own layers of PTSD and heaviness with it. So post-Iraq, it did. When I came back from Iraq, I, I struggled. I came back to college. I was finishing my senior year in undergrad. I was actually a history major myself. So mm -hmm. finishing up my undergrad in history. And I could not handle life back here. I mean, I was volunteering to go back to war. I wanted to go back to Afghanistan, go back to Iraq, just go back to conflict. And when I, when, when I, when I finished my undergrad, I went to go get my master's in journalism because I wanted to go back to war as a combat journalist. So I was just seeking an opportunity to go back to war any chance I could. Did you go to Afghanistan as well? I did not. I did one tour in Iraq because by like, I had volunteered to go back, but volunteering is not as easy as you might think. It's not, there's a lot of paperwork and stuff. So even though at this point I was a sergeant who had, you know, been to a combat zone, it, I want, I was like, send me with any unit. I don't care. I just want to go with an infantry unit to back to either Iraq or Afghanistan, but I didn't get my chance. And so that's, that was partly why I was inspired to go as a combat journalist. Because while I love the Marines, there's a there's not a lot of freedom in the Marines. If somebody tells you to do something in Iraq, you do it. No questions asked, right? So I wanted to go back to the experience of conflict, but as a journalist. Mm -hmm. That path changed when I met my then wife. But it was soon after that when the darkness sort of hit. I had lost a friend in the war. And I always felt he actually, we were in the same unit together. And he, he had gone to Iraq before I went and he died out there. And he, so when we, when we joined the unit, him and me volunteered to go to Iraq every chance we could. We were, we were like brothers. We wanted to go to combat together. Mm -hmm. And one summer while I was vacationing in India, he ended up finding a unit to go with and he was killed. Mm -hmm. And that tore me up before I even went to Iraq. And so I actually went to Iraq with this very, not a healthy mindset. I went to Iraq, not expecting to come back alive. I mean, I gave away all my shit. I said, if I die out there, like, I don't, I don't care. I'm ready to go. You know, I, right. I had no fear of death and that's not a good thing. <laughs> like they, I had no right, fear right, of death right, when right. I went out there. And so when I came back, I felt like, why did I get to come back? I didn't, I didn't get shot. I didn't lose any limbs. I didn't get, I, I was alive. And I really struggled with that. So the, the drinking in college eventually took a very, very dark turn. I mean, I was at a point in my life that I would drink literally a bottle a day a bottle of vodka, just, I mean, 750 milliliters of vodka day after day after day until like for five, six days until my body could no longer take it. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And one, a... one day after this binge session, I was, I woke up and I was seconds away from picking up a knife to slit my own wrist. Right. That right. was kind of the rock bottom that slowly, I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't that moment. Everything changed. It was a slow climb out of the abyss. I mean, I fell back into the pit after it. I drank after it. Right. But that was the trigger where it really sparked, um, a realization that something is clearly going wrong and I need to clearly start doing something different. Is that the survivor guilt must be a big percentage of guys that come back. Absolutely. I mean, everybody, I know guys who like, I have, I have a friend who ran into a burning Humvee to save a, a fellow Marine in Iraq and he couldn't save him. That guy died and he still feels guilt. So the, the, the what I've realized is there's this, the, the, the natural conclusion to that guilt is that if, if, unless I'm, unless I died out there, if I come back, no matter what people have done out there, they could have done the most heroic thing. They come back and a lot of people, not I can't speak to anybody, but a lot of people I've encountered, they still feel some degree of guilt that why did they get, why did I come back alive when others haven't? And I think it's a very normal feeling when you build the, and that, you know, that's what one of the things in my own healing was everybody told me not to feel guilty, right? It's not your fault. And sure. like, I get it. We can't control yeah. what happens in war. Bullets fly where they fly, bombs can hit where they hit. We can't control it. But the guilt wasn't the problem. It was my relationship to the guilt. 
You know, it's a very normal expression when you serve together as one, the camaraderie that forms. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not just veterans, right? A lot of people who lose somebody, they think, why them, not me? So sure. I think guilt is a very normal human response to love, to compassion, to camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't the problem in and of itself. It was how I viewed it that was sending me into dark spaces. And through my healing, I learned to reframe it. Like for a long time, I actually had a picture of my buddy Neil up on my wall. And it said, this should have been you. Earn this life. So I used my guilt as an ally to drive me to do the work that I do now, to write my book, to help others, to like this life I believe I've been gifted. I found out when I was in Iraq that my vehicle drove over an active IED. And for some reason, that, that didn't explode. So I don't know why my buddy's IED, it, like the, the, the one that hit him, it exploded. Mine did not. I don't know. Like I can never explain that. I don't understand. These are forces bigger than myself. But what I do know is that what I came to really own is that I can't waste this life that I've been gifted. It's on me to do something with it. Well, if it's not your day, it's not your day, too. That's a commonality everywhere we step, every step we take every day. So, Right? The, the sort of randomness of the universe happens, and who, can, who knows? So one thing that I am curious about at how you would explain it to yourself is, I mean, I understand the journey. You know, I understand the process of it all. It makes sense, right? But the, and then there's that one moment where you go, whoa, I really need to change here and make that happen. Now, most people who are go who are trapped into a really bad cycle, it's not that they don't realize they are in a bad cycle. They know they're in a bad cycle. They know it's not good for them. They would like to get out. Uh, they want to get out. But that process of going like from, you know, to, from a realization of this is not going to a good place to actually changing it there seemed to be a humongous gap in there between just mentally saying, yeah, I should change. Yes, this is not good for me. Yes, and actually being able to make it happen. How does that process work? Because I don't know, like, for example, like a friend of mine recently died in very much the kind of the, the scenario you describe, you know, downing vodka bottles day after day after day, super sweet guy, super good guy, very compassionate, very humongous heart. And, you know, I would get frustrated talking to him because there was a moment there where I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, just do something about it. You know, just make it happen, make that change. And I could tell that he wanted to. Every day he would wake up thinking, I'm going to do it. And every day it wouldn't quite work. And so at one point I was like, I stopped being upset with him because I realized this is not for lack of trying. This is like there's a muscle there that, or rather there's a muscle that's not there that's not able to transform that decision, that will into, into action. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the difference between somebody who can go through the exact same shit and go click and something happens and you turn it into action and you take a whole different path and somebody who wants to and cannot go click? It's, I mean, it's a great question, and it's a really hard thing to answer because, as we, we know, the success rates for people coming from addiction is very, very, very low. I've lost two, Marine, two junior Marines of mine to suicide, and I still know people struggling, right? For me, you know, what I can speak to is, like, it wasn't for, – for one thing, it's not one moment that changes everything. That one moment sure. was the trigger, but it was yes. like a constant fight. I broke my sobriety. Even, like, I, I fell back into the pit. And after sobering up for months on end, there was a point where I was sober for months. I went through a really challenging divorce, and I broke again. And when I break, I break hard, you know? So it, was, it wasn't like this one magical thing that changed everything. For me, what recognized, the, at least the initial shift 
was the reframing of the of the of the darkness of our shadows of the pain. See, everybody like I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Everybody told me I have like I, I was jumpy with loud noises. I struggle with crowds. I struggle with survivor's guilt. Now everybody said these are symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder, right? And so what happens when that when 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 I when I get labeled with that, it becomes a part of my identity. There's something wrong with me. This sure. is a disorder, right? Now, when I hit that rock bottom, at this point, I was seeing a therapist. And what would ha- usually, every time I go to the therapist, I would drive straight from there to the liquor store and come back and drink. Now, again, I take responsibility for my actions, but something didn't feel right about this. So after that low moment, I started delving deep into just devouring book after book, neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, to figure out what's going on. And yeah. the initial trigger was the realization that at a, you know, at a basic level, like post-traumatic stress does not mean post-traumatic stress disorder. These are all very normal human responses to war, being jumpy with loud noises, survivor's guilt, struggling with crowds. My brain learned to say this thing, all these situations equal death. That doesn't mean it's a disorder. And so by removing the label of disorder, by removing my judgment around these forces, I was able to let go of the identification of those forces. Okay, these things are happening, but this is not who I am. This is not my identity. So I'm constant. And then from there, constantly practicing and and remembering, I call it second dart. So to give context of what that is, Buddha once said that we're all stabbed with the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. So jumpy with loud noises, right? I don't control that. My brain, that was a subconscious response to an experience of danger. The second dart is what we do with it. The judgment, like there's something wrong with me. What's wrong with me? I'm fucked up in the head. Life hates me. All those self-talk that we have in response to those first darts, right? So what I learned to do was become aware of the second darts and stop judging it, accepting it noticing it, being with it. And through that process, and it's a relentless practice, like this cannot be stressed enough to your point about, you know, how do we stay that way? As I said, I broke my sobriety, like again, multiple times. But when that happened, every new, every new challenge, every, every time I fell, I had to look for some new answers. And then you constantly relentlessly have to practice it. And in time, you can change even the first dart, right? Like today, I'm not nearly as jumpy about with loud noises than I was when I first came back from the war. So the first dart kind of changed, but it took time. And it's just, I mean, the practice has to be so relentless. And that's why we got to build consistent routines to ingrain these these habit patterns that that become who we are. But it really started with the disidentification of my thoughts and my feelings. That was, I would say, the starting point that helped the slow climb out of the abyss. And then another key point is also translating the darkness into something of value. We need, like, I, you know, man's search for meaning, as Viktor Frankl said, right? We need, um, we need meaning to our lives. We need what I call, the word I use is worthy struggle. So we sure. need a worthy struggle. And I call it a worthy struggle because it will be hard. And so reframing our relationship to pain, I think is also foundational. Like stop demonizing words like fear, stress, anxiety, pain, suffering. When people hear that, they don't think of them as something positive. I slowly started to reframe that all these things are not bad in and of themselves. They're whatever we make them out to be. And so by falling in love with the suck, by embracing the suffering of life, I was able to translate that darkness and use it as something as something good. So it's not that I don't ever feel low moments anymore. It's not that I don't, I have moments of guilt today. I mean, to this day, every once in a while, what I do is I consciously watch scenes from war movies, knowing they will make me cry, tear me up inside. I will start crying. I have feelings of activating the intensity of that guilt, of the feeling I haven't done enough in the war to earn my place in the planet. But I consciously step into the intensity of that emotion, 
because there's something raw and powerful in it. And I don't think it's negative. It's what you do with it. I use that emotion now to remind myself that, look, there are still people in war zones. There's still people in refugee camps. There's people being trafficked as you and me are sitting here having this conversation. There's people in the darkest corners of hell as we speak. And it's on me to do something about that. And there's nothing like pain as a motivator. So mm-hmm. activating pain, activating the intensity of that emotion drives me. And reframing that has been incredible to then channeling it into a worthy struggle. I think that's also a big gap with people with addiction is that they come out. I've, I've had multiple friends have lost addiction. They come out, went to rehab, but then they don't channel it into something. So if you leave that void, inevitably you're going to retreat. Like Daniel Kahneman says, the brain is naturally lazy. We're going to retreat to the lazy's course of action. So sure. if your pattern is to go back to escaping from it, that's what you're going to do. And so unless we, we fill that void with something, we're going to go back into the pit. Did it change uh, when you started making this change? Did your surroundings change as in like people you hang out with or things like that? Because it seems to me precisely because of what you said that, you know, you're going to fall back to whatever it is that you are used to. That even if you have a great insight, even if you have a great motivation, even if you know, you know, you have that moment where you start taking the first one or two or three steps in a good direction, if everything in your surroundings is the same, can you still do it? Sure, you can. It's a hundred times harder, you know? So I'm wondering how that played out in terms of your external surroundings. It um, did. I mean, it's changed significantly, you know? And it was kind of, again, this gradual change because before this, my friend group, what do we do? Let's go get drunk, right? That was the yeah. thing we did uh, together. In fact, just two, a week ago, I had three, two friends come and visit and we did Wim Hof breathing together. We did hiking together. We did cold river dips together. And both of them are also have struggled with addiction in the past. And we were just kind of talking about how when we were in that space, our entire thing we did was hanging out with people and drinking or doing drugs or whatever it may be. So in time, when I started shifting by evolving within myself, you know, started running, started transiting and mountain climbing, I started building a different group of people in my tribe and that became a part of it. So it was kind of this cyclical thing. It was, it, it, it's hard, like the chicken and the egg. It's not that one came first. They both kind of fed into each other, right? Sure. I, I make internal shifts within it feeds into the environment, which then feeds into me and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And now it's like, I feel very blessed to now have a community that we do this kind of thing together. We suffer together, you know, and we grow together in that process. Yeah, because that seems to be even like in terms of Buddhist ideas, that seems to be one of the key ones is the idea of a community. Like, you know, Buddhism can be seen almost as a self-help path in some way, but then you see that is self to a point because then there is this emphasis on community the fact that the strength of the path also comes from your the people you surround yourself with and not purely as an individual path absolutely and And, you know i think it's the duality i think that having an important having a community is so so vital and important but i also think it shouldn't be a band-aid for solitude sure you know, I think that sometimes I notice in the sort of personal development, self-help world, it becomes a band-aid to escape from the being with ourselves. And okay. I think it's the duality, like having a great community is valuable, but you got to master the experience of being alone. So actually, when I broke my sobriety after the divorce, I went into the seven-day darkness retreat because I wanted to go way deep within. So I spent seven days in pitch darkness, silence, and isolation to confront myself and to practice solitude and to master that experience. Tell me about that. Yeah, where was that at? It was in Germany at a this so this it's a dark oh, Hans's house of darkness. I have been there. <laughs> <laughs> it was I mean, they have these we can provide that in Germany for ya. Right. <laughs> what was it like? It was a profound experience. I mean, as you can imagine, intense. So it's pitch darkness. Like you cannot see your hand in front of you darkness for seven straight days. 
because they say that neurologically what happens when you're in darkness for that extended period of time, your brain naturally starts to release DMT. So, I mean, I I had light shows that I had throughout the dark, throughout my time in the darkness. One of the most surreal experiences was five days into the darkness, I saw the brightest white light I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, blindingly white. And I'm touching, I I was touching my eyelids because I couldn't tell if they were open or closed anymore. I was covering my eyes with my hand because I felt like this light was so blinding and I'm sitting in a completely pitch dark room, you know? So having these, these light shows, and I was also journaling in the dark. So I had kind of a journal and I would use a ruler, just, you know, move it down and then uh, kind of bookmark the page. So I don't write over myself. And the answers that came to me were deeply profound. I mean, I'm not saying my answers are quote unquote right, but I found answers as to, to that satisfied me on sure. the nature of God, the nature of enlightenment, the meaning of why we're here. I also, a big thing that I confronted within myself in the darkness was that this, this residual feeling of guilt, like even though I'd kind of at this point, you know, sort of navigated, I'd even written my book at this point, I, I was in a good space relatively, but there was this still this constant guilt of why do I get the life that I get? You yeah, know, like yeah, the, a really good example of this was when I, right before the yeah, darkness yeah. retreat, I did a 167 mile run across Liberia to help build a school out there. It's about a marathon a day for a week. And on the first day of the run, I ran into these two kids and we just started chatting. Emmanuel and Blessing were their name. And we started just talking, trying to understand who they are, what they, what they wanted out of life. One kid wanted to go to medical school. The other wanted to go to vocational training school. Now, the odds of that happening were damn near zero. They lived in a tiny village in post-conflict Liberia, mm-hmm. you know? And I still remember after that experience, like I was running there, I was choosing my suffering, right? It was a luxury to go run 167 miles across the country, even though you suffer, but it's a chosen suffering. How did you choose Liberia? Sorry, what's that? Of all the places, how did you choose Liberia? That's a hell of a choice. There was a, there was a, a, a group filming a documentary out there. And so we were, after the run, we did two weeks of humanitarian work and filming this documentary. And so I was I signed up for that. And because I was going there anyway, as one does, I was like, why not run across the country? <laughs> and, uh, you know, why not? And use it to sort of raise funds. We were helping to build the first sustainable vocational training school in the country. An intense experience. I mean, the country's gone through a brutal civil war, Ebola virus, I was work. I worked with uh, former child soldiers when I was there. You know, people in extreme poverty. So a very profoundly intense experience. But you look at that. Like, what what separated me from those two kids? I was born where I was born. Great parents, loving family, relatively wealthy. Now they're much better. But you know, no suffering when I was born. They were born where they were born, and as a result, one of them had lost their parents in war, in extreme poverty, and their odds of them fulfilling their dreams were damn near zero. Where I get to, you know. And I struggle with that. So that was one thing I confronted a lot in the darkness was this constant feeling of guilt about my place on the planet. And why do I get to be happy? Why do I, I mean, it was still there, right? It was still like residual to some degree. And that, I, 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 I worked through that a lot and sort of recognized that, look, me being happy in the world is not going to change the fact that others are suffering, but it can only be like the way I look at it now is like happiness is a service fuel. If I'm happy and joyful in the work, I can do the work better. While you're in the darkness, is there a time distillation? Did it fade away? Did you feel like things just sort of, I mean, if there's not a clock, it could be 10 seconds or it could have been 15 yeah. hours, and you probably wouldn't know a difference. And did they just come in with a flashlight when, like, oh, seven days, time for you to go. <laughs> the Actually, so pro- the most profound experience was not what I got in the dark, although there was a lot in there, but the most profound was when I came back into the light. What they do is they take, you put a mask on, and they take kind of guide you, out to the deck and you're kind of in this beautiful area in Germany. So the black forest and stuff like that. And they see so you, you sit on the deck and they're just, whenever you're ready, take off your mask. 
and taking off the mask there, I mean, it's hard to describe in words what that experience was like. I mean, I was moved to tears and I just like, there was two thoughts that ran through my mind in this moment as I was just being with the light is that one, I wish I could look at the world every day through these eyes. Of course. Obviously, you, it, you, it normalizes and you don't. But the second thought was this deep sense of gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I'd ever experienced in life. Because although at this point, I'd kind of recognized that the darkness is an access point to light, in this way, I viscerally felt it, right? Like in a very literal sense, I could only see the light the way I saw it because I had spent seven days in the dark. And I recognized in a very visceral way, I came to know the value of the dark, of engaging the dark. You know, One of my favorite quotes from Carl Jung, he says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And you know, so going into those spaces within ourselves, within and without, it allows us to see the world in a different way. And that was by far the most profound experience was like opening my eyes to the light the first time after seven days. It was unreal. Oh, I bet. I can't, I guess I can't, you know, since you mentioned earlier, I hate to ask because it sounds so stupid, but the when you're saying, you know, in that process, you saw, you understood a certain degree of meaning of what it means. I hate to ask what's the meaning of life, but kind of, you know, because that's where, like, what was the insights that you got in there as much as they are transmissible through language? What kind of thing did you feel that you didn't know before? If I look at, you know, it's what and what I didn't know before, it was more of a clarity on these on these experiences. So let's so let's say, for example, if like my take on and again, this is not to say it's right inherently sure. on God. Right. I don't believe in a higher power God. I think there's just too much evil on Earth. But I, I do believe there's something. And what I guess what what really allowed me what the darkness opened me up to that I didn't know before was tapping into the mystical in the in the realm of life. So. My book, Fearvana, that I wrote before the darkness, it's very scientific, practical, pragmatic. Everything before the darkness had to be defended. I need to understand it. Even if it's not to explain it to others, I need to explain it to myself. I need to, there's need to be def like defended with proof, with science, with reason, with rationality. In the darkness, I opened up my eyes to the realm of the mystical. You know, like beyond the show, this one light show that I told you, there was another day, I think this was day six, where I was meditating and I was lying on my bed and there was a moment where my, it felt like my arm was locked in this sort of claw and it was locked like this. And I was seeing these red and green like stars kind of in this, this light show in this universe above. And it must've been, I couldn't tell you how long, cause again, I had no sense of time, but it must've been hours, you know? And, and I was moved to tears and I felt like my body was moving left and right. And every time the light would fade, I would just say, please God help me go deeper, you know? And I, and it would show back up till eventually, I don't, again, I don't know how long it was. And again, there was like tears coming down my eyes as I was going through this experience. And so these experiences allowed me to tap into something that cannot be explained. And I've realized the value of that. Like words have restrictions because if you attach words to anything, you're, you're bringing through those words to, the, to a construct, right? A mental sure. construct that has been assigned to us by life, by something. Sure. And inherently, when you do that, you're taking away from something because you're bringing that construct to the experience, through the words. Right. So when you stop trying to understand and explain it, you kind of surrender to the mystical. And so that was one thing that has now allowed me to bring that into this life is that I don't need to explain everything, not forget about to others, even to myself, and just really surrendering to this mysticism. And it's like coming back to the concept of the duality, right? Like the yin and yang of life, the duality is the practical and the mystical, both have their place, science and spirituality. So that was one. But if I had to like say one word that summarized the essence of what I take, my takeaway in the darkness was self-transcendence. 
That was a word that throw, showed up throughout my darkness journal. And I believe God is, is an expression of self-transcendence. So God is when Michael Durant volunteer, I mean, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar sacrificed their lives for Michael Durant, or a soldier jumps on a grenade to save a fellow human being, you know, or a single mom working three jobs to sacrifice her entire well-being for her kid. That to me is an expression of God. And so God is when we transcend what is to become something more. That's mm -hmm. where I, so that was some stuff that I got about viewing that. So even to this day now, like since the darkness, like one question I often ask myself is how can I be a full expression of God in this moment? And there's multiple ways to, to, to express that, right? But I believe God is self-transcendence. And self-transcendence, if I had to answer, like, what is life about? I believe that's the end. Like, that's what it is, is self-transcendence. Well, I guess in that scenario, how would the, you know, earlier you were touching on the question of, like, why do I get the life I get? And why these two Liberian kids get the life? Why do I get these cards? And why do I get those cards? In addition to kind of shifting mental in terms of accepting that's how it is deal with it you know you're useless to be stuck in a place of guilt about it how did you explain it to yourself in this other sort of meaning of life kind of way was there like because the first step is the purely practical one right it's like well you know there's no point beating yourself about something that you have no control over and that's fine how do you explain it to yourself or do you in terms of like meaning of life? You know, why do these guys end up with these cards and they end up with these different sets? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And my take on it for when I came out was honestly just as simple, but maybe not very profound is that I have no clue why life is the way it is. You know, I have, it's so beyond me. I am one, one small yeah. element in this grand scheme of things. And, and that's why, again, not to take away from other people's beliefs. I respect everything, but I don't personally believe in a higher power God looking out for everybody. So sure. for my take is there's just a randomness to the universe and I can't explain it. I don't know why, but then there's all these experiences that like, we don't, I mean, like my vehicle drove over a bomb and didn't explode. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what that is. Right. So yeah. it's really just, so coming back to what I said about surrendering to the mystical. Yeah. And I think, I think accepting that there is the mysticism of the human experience has been very profound. Right. And, and the, the cool part is that, and, and I still sometimes wrestle with it because I, I want to explain it, but, sure. but I remember now that there's things that cannot and should, and almost like should not be explained because again, right. when you, when you do, you're bringing that construct to it. So you just, you accept what is, and I just like now the way is, I can't control that there is that pain and suffering in the world, but I can control the fact that I can do something about it, even if it's in one small way. And that is what like I can bring within to my realm of control. So that's the practical. And then at the same time, on the more meaning of life, you accept, like, if I read it correctly, you're saying you feel that there is something, but it's so beyond anything that we can express that it's almost useless and counterproductive to over-intellectualize about what that meaning is, is. There probably is, but it's beyond what we can, what we can put together. Do I really kind of write what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. That's my take is that they're so beyond us. So all we can do is bring back into our realm. And, and I do believe that we exist as one, you know, the, uh, the one human family, like with connected with earth, with each other. And so it's a responsibility. It's a beautiful responsibility. Uh, and also like, it's a burden and a beauty, right? Again, it's a duality, but to view that responsibility now to say, it's on you to like, to, to, to work, to do something about that. And if you can help one, two, three, four on the journey, that matters, you know? Definitely. Definitely. We've had a couple of guests on that talked about using psilocybin mushrooms to dial in there. And since you're kind of chasing the DMT edge of it, do you think the psychedelics could help if you had any experience with that or is that would wreck your sobriety? 
Because I think something natural like that's not really in that realm of alcohol and destructive things that we create. Totally. Great question. So I have many friends who've done the psychedelic thing. Uh, and it's been an, an invaluable form of therapy from a lot of from uh, the research that there is about it uh, from people I know directly who've done it. And it's the, the transformational elements it's had for them. For me, my only one experience with psychedelics has been, and this is so weird. My, I've shared it with some of my friends and they're like, they find it crazy that this was my experience. I did MDMA after I sobered up. And honestly, it was horribly dark for me. Like, and which is weird, MDMA from everything, yeah. like my friends were like, dude, that's, that's like, you're the only person I've heard who had a dark experience. MDMA is not supposed to be that. So I don't know what it is. It, it partly was after the divorce. And so what showed up for me was a lot. I think I hadn't worked through that yet. It was really challenging, but it was a dark, dark experience. So I'm still not opposed to it. Like I, I, I would be potentially open to doing like a, a ayahuasca journey. But I think where we got to be careful, we, we human beings, we tend to like, we, we look for short, we're looking for the easiest way out. And sure. we can flirt with the line when we're looking for shortcuts, even to enlightenment. Like you can get that same experience in seven days in darkness, but it takes seven days in darkness to get there, right? <laughs> that's, that's a much more challenging committing in every way, time, body, spirit, committing way than taking the, you know, the ayahuasca or whatever. So it's not knocking psychedelics. It's like, I just think we got to be careful about constantly looking for shortcuts to everything, including enlightenment. And in fact, one of my friends, who, you know, Aubrey Marcus, he's did. So after I was on his show, he did the darkness retreat, you know, after hearing about it, um, he, he went to the same darkness yeah. retreat. And I believe he said that even though he's done a lot of the psychedelics, that the darkness retreat was the most powerful enlightening experience he had even compared to the psychedelics. Mm -hmm. But again, it's much more challenging to go spend seven days in darkness. So it's, it's a fine line we got to flirt and be careful with. This is my take on it for what it's worth. Totally. So what's up with the, the whole fear, stress, all the things that are normally seen as uh, negative uh, feelings that you say, well, there's a way to reframe them. I mean, there clearly is a reason why they are seen as negative things, right? Because even like on some level, nobody enjoys that process. You know, well, maybe you do, <laughs> but uh, you, you know what I mean? It's like, there's something there that it, it sucks. There's a reason why people across the globe uh, tend to run away from it because it just fucking sucks. It hurts. It's, uh, it's, and in that sense, it seems interesting because it seems like your brain was wired in that direction to seek it before a lot of the other experiences before even it became a good path for you. Like you had kind of a knack for it. You had a certain affinity for it. I understand. I mean, I, I get the notion of, you know, you need, it's kind of like lifting weights, right? You know, you need to break down muscle and how do you break down muscle by putting on enough weight that it's beyond purely the easy comfort zone. I get it. So I understand the idea that pushing the edges of the comfort zone is how growth happens. At the same time, it seems like it's a very delicate process, right? Because it's like anything, if you push it a little too much, you break, you know, you, you injure your body or you injure your mind or you do that whole. So it's like, I mean, even like I give you an example, like with stress, um, I understand the value of stress. I've done things where I push myself in uncomfortable situation, both fear wise and stress wise. And I think to some degree it was helpful. But then I also see cases where I've um, probably because of life experiences, my ability to handle stress has actually decreased over time. And so now for me, I have to be very careful about pushing that envelope because it's very easy to do 
to go through it in a way that's not going to help me grow, but is actually going to break me, you know? So I don't know if that makes any vague sense with, uh, like I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with it as I speak. So I'm not a hundred percent that I convey that well, but I'm kind of feeling like sometime it's, um, it's an interesting slippery slope because I get it. You know, I get the advantages and I also feel there's a danger zone where depending on who you are and depending rather than growing through it, you crash through it. Totally. And it totally makes sense. Uh, I myself, I mean, this was literally a few weeks ago. I did an eight minute cold river dip and I got mild hypothermia. I was pushing the right. line a bit too far. And it's a line I have to be very careful with someone when I do, because when you do these things, you like when you push the line X, you want to take it a little bit further and see, because you kind of right. get hooked to that. So how I navigate it and my take on it for like the, the you know, to this to question about flirting with this edge of stress is it's coming back to this concept of duality, which I've referenced before. So it's actually a concept that I call the paradox of singular duality. And I, that's like a term I coined, you know, for mm -hmm. whatever. And it's intentionally abstract and, and meant to be sort of this, um, a thinker. And the idea of it is in life, there's all these dualities, right? There's sure. Ego, humility, contentment, discontentment, darkness, light, male, female. There's all these series of dualities. And we often frame one side of du a duality as bad, right? We say ego is bad, or sure. like if we look at fear and nirvana, fear is bad, discontentment is bad. But it's not that one side is bad or good. It's the, it's the unification of the duality that leads to the next awakening. So how this ties into stress and, suffer and, and, and engaging suffering is I realized at one point in my life that I have, I'm clearly one who seeks suffering, right? I run ultras, I climb mountains, I do a lot of things going in darkness. And I realized that I was sort of bringing suffering into every area of my life. I was constantly suffering, even like I get this. And again, it was the divorce that sort of awakened me to this understanding. And so when I looked at this concept of dualities, I realized if you look at the duality of suffering and play, right? Let's say you can put whatever words you want to that, but let's say sure. suffering and play. I went ham onto the other edge of the duality and by going into exploring play, being light, ha like having a sense of humor, being like just playful, dancing, you know, like I remember once it was a retreat and they were doing these like hula hoops and really silly games during breaks between the retreats. And every time that came up, I would bolt. Nothing to do with that. I mean, if they Fuck were like play. Burpees, I used to I would suffer. Like yes. Into it, right. <laughs> right. So, we're not going to have any of that good food on the buffet. Tonight. Exactly. We're going to eat grass. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Sure, sure, sure.
So I want to ask you like a more specific advice in terms of like a couple of things that I've tried where I realized that, yeah, my ability to handle stress has dramatically decreased. Yeah. Um, like, for example, in at one point, oh, since you were mentioning the ice bath or the Wim Hof stuff and stuff, you know, I'll, the breathing is cool. I enjoy that. Easy enough. Um, I remember like I did an ice bath with uh, a few people and, you know, the person who was a friend of ours who was teaching, she goes in and she's a monk. She's all perfectly happy in this like ice bath. And then uh, my girlfriend, Savannah, goes in, no problem. Um, two or three other people go in. You can see that they have a second where it's shocking, but they breathe through it and 20 seconds in, they're good. And then they stay there two minutes and they are good and they handle it well. Uh, so I go with the same mentality. I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. You know, it's going to be interesting. And then I get over it. Right. And I go in and my body just shuts down immediately. I basically hyperventilate the entire two minutes and there's zero progress to a place of relaxation or finding a place of comfort in suffering or finding a way to relax. And by the time I get out, my throat is like three quarters closed. Is like just from the physical shock of the cold, I'm like going like, uh, uh, you know, I, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, there are six other people who to one degree or another, they either took it like a walk in the park or mildly challenging, but no big deal. And I'm like halfway dead. What the hell? You know, what happened there? Or like, you know, we we're talking about the psychedelic stuff at one point in terms of dealing with my own crap. I remember because everybody I knew around was strongly recommending a psychedelic crowd. So I go with this lady who's like a psychedelic therapist. We do an amount of mushrooms, which is a solid amount. But again, I know people who do it, no problem. And I go in just pure complete hell and i mean like hell from another planet kind of hell i can tv i black out for an hour i don't remember anything i come to a place where i people are like oh when you're having a bad trip you can maybe take a walk and look at nature i'm like i can't fucking move what walk you know i'm crawling on the floor without <laughs> a and petrified so, animal drowning in terror but it's too much yes that's the description <laughs> and so i'm like you know, these are a couple of examples that come to mind, right? But there are a few of these things where I feel like things that other people find challenging and then actually helpful and stimulating seem to squash me like a bug now. And so I'm like, hmm, what do I do with that? Because it's not like I didn't want to try or I didn't even go in with the mindset of like, of course, you know, yeah, it hurts for a while and then you got over it and you're good. You know, I've done a lot of things like that in my life, but I seem to have a hard time with it now. And I'm like trying to figure out what to do with it because there are times that I'm like, okay, this seemed like an interesting path, but I don't seem to respond the same way that many people do. But in, you're saying in the past you used to respond differently. Better. I don't know that I ever responded great, but better for sure. Okay. So, yeah, interesting. That is fascinating. So my take on it, like there's kind of a few, few different ways to view it. One is that having clarity, like it's not just about suffering for the sake of suffering, right? You know, uh, like as I said, I used to cut myself. There was no virtue to that. So one is clarity on, is this our worthy suffering? Is mm -hmm. this some, like, and what am I gaining from it? So I might choose to do a cold bath and somebody else says, look, I'm going to, or like I run ultras. Now I'm not, I'm not saying everybody should like running sure. ultras is the only way to, to grow, right? 
But yeah. is this my worthy suffering? And perhaps there's some party says, I, like, I don't want this. I don't seek this. There's no value to this. It's not virtue for me. So I'm not, I'm not responding accordingly. That could be part of it. The other part of it is also, if we look at the areas that are causing us like a bad response to this and go kind of meta about it, right? Like looking at the patterns in response to that. So I'll give you an example for myself is like right now, my, I'm, I, I'm like now single. So I'm, I'm dabbling in dating. That shit fucking terrifies that'll, me. That'll get some suffering going real quick. <laughs> it terrifies me. There you go. Me. You've hit the jackpot now. All right. Like, and it's ridiculous. My friends find it absolutely amusing because like the other day I was on a dating app and I was about to just send a message to somebody and writing a message to somebody, I was more scared doing that. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to procrastinate on this and go. I did like a brutal 45 minute workout, like suffering, sweating. And I'm yeah. like smiling in that shit. You know, like my comfort zone is sure. that pain. So yeah. the point is there, we become we can even become comfortable with discomfort, right? So like I call this, then how, how, do we, how do we progress past this? It's a concept that I call meta suffering. So suffering for me, like ultra running is suffering. It's not easy, but it's a comfortable sure. suffering. Like I'm used to it. I'm familiar yeah. with it. I'm acclimatized to it. But when I do meta suffering, I'm now adding discomfort onto the discomfort. And so I'm evolving into a new space. So like an example of that is like dating for me is an example in meta suffering or even like getting on the rower. I'm not great on the rowing machine. It's not valuable to my training. Like I'm not trying to be the best rower for polar exploration, for mountaineering. It has really no practical applications other than it's an experience for me in meta suffering because going ham on the rower for 30 minutes is completely different than going running for seven hours, you know? Mm -hmm. So to address that to your point is like, I would go meta on these experiences and say, okay, what is it about it? Like I did that even with my, with, with myself in dating. Like I realized that in my areas of comfort zone for suffering is that I control it, right? Like in running, I, it's up to me to suffer to get to the end result. If I choose, if yeah. I suffer enough, if I fight enough, I'll get there. It's not the same in dating. Dating kind of requires a little bit more of an active surrender. You can't control sure. another, there's another human being involved that means two worlds yeah. coming together. So by going meta on it, I was able to understand it. And then recognize what's the differences, how can I play in it? Now, it doesn't make it any easier, but at least by becoming aware of it, I can do something with that awareness and choose outside of the, outside of the fear, outside of the stress. I can choose outside of it. And then, and again, coming back to that point of the clarity, like, is this something I really want? Or am I just doing it because five other, five other people went in the water, right? And, I'm, sure. and again, I don't know necessarily what drove, but by getting that kind of awareness on the experiences, I can understand it. And then maybe say like, look, I have no desire to do this shit, you know? I have no desire to, well, to get in cold water. So cool. I'm not going to choose that suffering. I guess the trick for me is that when somebody explained to me certain paths, I mean, in this case, it's like the psychedelic and the cold water. could be something else too. Like, I get the value. I understand. It mm -hmm. makes sense to me as a mm -hmm. path. I see, I see how that would benefit physically, mentally, everything. So that's why I want to do it kind of thing. You know, that's why I pursue it. I go for it. And then I ran into a wall and I'm like, whoa. What the hell? <laughs> That's yeah. not the way it was supposed to work. <laughs> yeah. Is because uh, again, I accept the process that you know there's a harshness to go through to get through. But that's if you get through. If you don't get through, it just you just get kicked in the balls for no reason, and then you're like, wait, what? What happened here? You know? Yeah. So I mean, part of it could also be like working your way through it because that's and that's another thing. Coming back to the point that I mentioned about awareness being relentless, it's the same mm -hmm. thing with suffering. Like if I don't run for a week a two hour run now feels like brutal again. So sure. my point, we get, we get acclimatized to comfort extremely fast, like right. more, much faster than you think you would. You know, even if I don't do a cold water bath for a week, suddenly it's going to feel much more brutal than if I was doing it every day. 
Sure, so there's sure, sure. that element of it. Like maybe you just gotten acclimatized to a different kind of comfort. And the other is, okay, like, you know, let me work my way up this instead of, so if I, instead of doing a two minute dip, let me step in, step in, right. step out. Next right. time I'll do a five second, 10 seconds. Then you build a comfort zone to that suffering. Like that's why for me, I can jump into cold water and I'll do a 10 minute dip, even if I get hypothermia, but that's right. because that's a suffering that I'm comfortable with, if that makes sense. No, I get it. Cause I mean, there are things that uh, people are scared of. Yeah. That don't bug me a tiny bit. I mean, I see people terrified of public speaking or expressing their feelings or, you know, saying certain things emotionally. And I'm just like, there's no, yeah. <laughs> what? I mean, it's like, uh, or somebody will tell me, oh my God, that was so brave of you to, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? There's, yeah, it felt like I don't feel any fear. <laughs> I don't feel any discomfort. So there's no bravery involved. It's it's easy. You know, it's no big deal. Speaking of bravery, when when did you get married? Before the service or after when you were in college time? Or? After uh, my master's. Okay. Yeah. Oh, after the master's even. That was what changed the path from going into war, war journalism because combat journalism is not exactly conducive yeah. to a, a family life. Family. So uh, that's what changed that path. Yeah. How did you end up uh, getting endorsed by the Dalai Lama? That's kind of a cool story. That was, I mean, just a huge honor and tremendous blessing, of course, as you can imagine. So how that happened, you know, when I finished writing Fearvana, it's a very spiritual concept, right? Like Fearvana is a very spiritual concept. So I thought, who is the sort of spiritual leader of the world to validate this? I mean, I had no brand, no platform, unknown, nothing, right? Yeah. So I thought, okay, Dalai Lama, spiritual leader of the world, why not get his endorsement? Now, I didn't have any connects or anything. So, the, the, and this is, I think, valuable in terms of the mindset. That's why I want to share the lesson is that at first, when the idea came to me, I immediately shot it down. Like, who am I? There's no way it could sure. happen. Like, all that good stuff. And then later on, I was like, okay, why not try? What's the worst? Worst that happened, yeah. I get a no, and I'm back where I'm started. So I reached out to the email on His Holiness's office, like the on the website, got me nowhere. So I remember one day I spent like hours of research on Google. I found one name of a monk in the office there and his email address. So at least it was a direct person, <laughs> not just a random form. Reached out to him. Right. I shared a video with my story, what like I'd gone through, what we're doing with Firavana, all the profits in the book are going to charity, what the larger mission is for Firavana. Shot him a video, wrote him a letter. He connected me to three other monks. So finally, like three months later, I'm now connected to the right person. And after like five, six months of building a relationship with him, and it was fascinating my mindset the whole time, right? You don't get an email back. Your mind goes, oh, they hate me. They hate my book. This is not going to happen. You're filled with the doubt. But this is the key they point call, that at this point- They call I, that the long no in Hollywood. The long no. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And you navigate that stuff. But it's like, it's a, this is the lesson that I had learned in my own healing was you can be with a thought, but you don't have to be defined by the thought, right? So right. I would notice the thought and take action anyway, follow up, build a relationship. And then after like five months of building a relationship with this monk, he wrote me back saying, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And I was wow. truly blessed that, I mean, I would only ask for like a one-line endorsement, but the Dalai Lama ended up writing the forward. He wrote, sent me this letter with His Holiness's seal and his signature that we've now framed and put up in the house. And uh, I mean, obviously personally and spiritually, just so, just a huge honor. But you can also imagine as an unknown author, game changer in terms of marketing for the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know it would be on the cover, that's for sure. <laughs> that was, I mean, it was a tremendous. And of course, like I said, all the prophets are going to charity. So it's been a blessing to get the book out there to help people directly through the book and indirectly through the money we raise uh, for the causes we support. So it's been a huge honor. <laughs> you said something about working with the victims of sex trafficking. And you mentioned earlier something about trafficking. So I was like interested in... I don't know. Anything you want to tell me about that? I had these experiences where I worked with, as I mentioned, former child soldiers, people in poverty, survivors of sex trafficking. So one of the organizations we support is this organization in India 
with these young girls who are either daughters of sex workers or, or, and or survivors of sex trafficking. And uh, we support them just through the fundraising, but also I've spent time with them, talking with these young girls, learning their stories, hearing their stories, sharing Firavana with them. And I mean, what they've been through and same thing with like these child working with these child soldiers in, uh, in, in Liberia, they've seen the darkest corners of humanity, the darkest, the darkest aspects of human evil. And I mean, it's, it, it's horrifying to me what these people go through. Sure. And, uh, and just that experience for me, I mean, I've learned more from them than I, they could ever learn from me. And for me, like sharing with them is how to turn that, you know, there's this stigma that's placed on people who've gone through traumatic experiences, right? Like, and I've had this as a veteran, people assume that because I'm a veteran, I'm like fucked up in the head and there's something wrong with me. And there's this stigma placed on these young girls that because they've gone through this, there's only so much they can do. They're victims, but they're not like helping them say that, look, nobody, nobody would ever want them to go through what they've gone through. Like they've again, seen the darkest corners of humanity and it's horrifying, but having gone through it now, they're not worse off from it. They're not victims from it. This was the same thing in Liberia that people, the country sort of had this, or a lot of people in the country had this thing, like this feeling that I'm a victim because my country's gone through war, survive, you know, Ebola, poverty. Yeah. And it's like, you're not a victim. Like this can make you stronger. You, you have gone through more hell on earth than most human beings can fathom. And because you know the darkest of the dark, it means you are now opened up to the possibility of knowing the brightest of the light and helping them turn that darkness into an access point of light. You know, I mean, it's been like working with these, working on these edges of the, the human condition at, at its darkest has been, it's, it stays with you, you know, it, uh, it, it lives within you and I'm grateful for it. It, 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 it. Like there's almost not a day that goes by when I'm running in a sunset here I would say almost because there's some days that, you know, I get caught up in the grind, if, if, but almost not a day that goes by where I don't remember the fact that there are people out there in these spaces. And so it does live with you and it's a darkness you have to contend with and be with to in a personal note, like, because it can consume you if you're not careful. Uh, but working with them has been like the, one of the most profound in all these contexts, whether it be the child soldiers or like these, I mean, even this one of this one child soldier I worked with, this guy had seen his family being killed. He, and I quote, saw his girlfriend raped to death and the things this man has seen, it's, it's fucking horrifying. Like it's yeah. absolutely horrifying. And just to help work with them to see how they've come out of this darkness and to use it as something like as a, as a vehicle to light. And I think that's, what's so powerful about working with these people on the, on the sort of the edges of the human condition is that helping them reframe their struggle because the, so much of the world tells them that they are now basically victims. They're gone. They're gone for life. Like with survivors of sex trafficking, they're often told the only thing you can now do is sort of these sewing jobs or something like that. They're, they're resigned to these, this, this labor. And it's not, not that there's anything wrong with that job. The point is that's not who they have to be. They can be who the fuck they want to be. Yeah. That's an option, not the mandate. Exactly. Right. And, and their darkness can be fuel. So just giving them that reframe and, uh, and, and seeing how they do it themselves. Cause they're, they're fucking warriors. Like these people are just some of the strongest young girls I've ever met in my life and just these kids are just absolute warriors no that makes perfect sense do you uh and I know this goes in a slightly different direction in that regard because it's less about as an individual how you can reframe it and more on structural stuff but do you see do you think legalization and regulation of sex work would lead to less cases like these where there would be less likely scenarios of abuse or not because I kind of heard it both ways you know, I'm I'm certainly no expert on it, but from talking to these girls, I they they would validate, like they would say yes, because even the sex work in India, they would say yes, and I think I think it would. Again, I'm not an expert in that sure, area. Of course, that. of course. No, no, I was just curious your opinion. Not from what I understand from speaking with them, from having worked, like having spoke to 
uh, sex workers and, and daughters of sex workers that that would be a better route in terms of preventing uh, uh, the, the the trafficking. As we know, like the the, the, the amount that happens is, is insane and, and it's crazy. So I think I think that would be a better route. That kind of is where I would lean to. But again, I was curious to see if you had a radically different experience or something. Still doesn't sound like a great gig. No, but still. But like, it's better having, than yeah, just being out on your own. And, yeah, yeah, totally. It definitely. Not having the police, like having legally somewhere you can turn to because yeah. you're not involved in any legal business and yep. all of that, that all helps out. I'm wondering where, where in the world is, are you and Lauren Bacall today? I'm uh, in Burlington, Vermont right now. Oh. I'm kind of, I sold my place in Jersey in November and now I'm kind of doing the nomadic thing. I'm going to climb Denali in May, going to Antarctica in December. So I've got multiple expeditions lined up over the next few uh, how months. How long will you stay in Antarctica? Are you going deep and doing the six months or? I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be about. Talk about darkness. The, uh, well, actually, no, it, it'll be 24 hours light in this time in Antarctica. Oh, it'll be 24 hours light. But I'm going to be doing about a 30 to 40 day expedition to the South Pole following in Roald Amundsen footsteps. And then doing, going straight from there to do a 10-day climb of Mount Vincent, the tallest mountain in Antarctica, followed immediately by a, a one-week scuba diving the Galapagos, and then an expedition to the North Pole. So I got all these back-to-back, like, crazy expeditions lined up for the end of the year. So it'll be Jesus. about six to eight weeks in Antarctica, and then multiple other polar expeditions that I'm preparing for. Check you out. And be beautiful suffering. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. Anything else you want to throw out there before we wrap? You know, just the biggest takeaway for anybody listening is just uh, sort of repeating that mantra to suffer well like training that because it it teaches you more about life and yourself and and will help you face whatever life throws your way mm-hmm. and if there's one the most pro- profound way to do it is through exercise you know you you talk about it and exercise i mean one neuroscientist calls a miracle growth for the brain so what it does on a neurological level obviously on a physical level but to me the most valuable benefits are the spiritual level so just practicing and training in that it won't be comfortable it's not meant to be comfortable right. but it will build you into someone better and stronger to face life whatever throws your way i dig it cool my man thank you so much thank you so much thank you both so much excellent Funky music means one thing. That's another fine episode of the Drunken Taoist podcast. Man, that's some dedication right there. I don't know if I totally get it. Um, I wish he has a little more non-suffering in his life because there are some good things out there. But I guess, like you said, if it works, it works. Yeah, and in his case, makes him happy. Yeah, right? and it, it works. works. I'm it not works trying perfect. to take anything away from him. I just, uh, I just hope he has a cheeseburger. <laughs> Well, so let's say thank you to Daisy House for the great music in the intro. Absolutely. Uh, let's say thank you to those of you guys who have been helping out with the Kiva.org project. That's phenomenal. It continues to just uh, grow and grow. So come to Kiva.org. You can join Team Drunken Dallas. And uh, I, I think we're at $170,000 in loans now. I love that. That's just ridiculous. It really is. And it's awesome. It is awesome. What else? What else? I think that wraps things up, right? Yeah. We'll see everybody next time. Cool. Sweet. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one.
and so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see y'all soon. Woo! No, you don't. In questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. Completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're right? outro. Oh, we're out. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me you about. Translate for me, please. I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one. Exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> no, that's maybe too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. I'm 50 now. Can you fucking believe that? <laughs> I was melancholy about it for like a good month. Like, uh... But I think I was more worried about dying at 49. <laughs> <laughs> so making it to 50. Making the 50 uh... like, fuck it. I think Louis C.K. may be a monster, but he had a great line. No one gives, there's no candlelight vigils for somebody over 50. <laughs> he had his chance. Why?